Hey everyone, welcome to the Fellowship Greenville Student Ministry Podcast. It is summertime and also it is time to begin a brand new series we are calling The Gospel. Follow along in this first week as we look at Jesus' explanation of what the gospel is as he encounters a rich young ruler who's curious about eternal life. Hope you enjoy this message. All right, well, welcome everyone to Fellowship Greenville. We are so glad you're here. My name is Matt Dinsky. I serve here, as you know, on the student ministry team. Drew, what's up, dude? Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Good to see you, buddy. You with me tonight? All right, bud. Hey, your hair looks fantastic, by the way. Don't change it. Looks great. Hey, we're so glad you're here tonight. We are kicking off summer, and uh, because we've turned corner and we're no longer in the school year and we're now in summer, we always like to kind of launch a new uh, series, kind of bring our, our minds and our hearts towards kind of a fresh idea. And so this summer we are going to be in a series called The Gospel. And really, uh, like, it's kind of face value obvious. This summer we are going to study, look into, investigate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what's really interesting is if you open the scriptures, especially if you've got like a King Jimmy Bible or something like that, like King James 1611, something a little bit older, and you turn to the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's not often that you just see Matthew on the title page and then you go to Mark, Mark. What you see is the gospel according to Matthew, which was a disciple of Jesus. Then you go over to Mark and you see the gospel according to Mark, which was a disciple of Jesus. Same thing with Luke, same thing with John. It's the gospel according to them. And what's really interesting is they're, they're letting us know, hey, this is our recollection. This is our pers- perspective of what we experienced. Um, and if you know anything about humans, we are notorious for remembering things or seeing things a little bit differently, which is why if you've ever read through the gospels and you've kind of noticed, wait, like this sounds a little bit different. Matthew versus Luke or Matthew and Mark sound a little bit different in this same story. It's because you have two people looking at maybe a similar event and recalling things differently. The same way that, uh, maybe you guys have experienced this. If you I don't know, go on a trip with your friends or you've got a day on the lake this summer or, or whatever, something happens. Have you ever found yourself telling a story and as you tell the story, other people who were there with you interrupt and correct your story? And they're like, wait, no, 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 it didn't happen like that. And, but you adamantly know that it did. Like, no, yes, it did happen like that. That person did say that. That did happen. And now multiple people who were at the same thing are recalling it differently. You guys can relate to this? Apparently this always happens with one of you, all of you? Okay, Alex, yes, okay. Oh, sweet Alex. Yeah. And so, so this summer we're going to study the gospel, look at the gospel, and, um, and kind of open ourselves up towards what Jesus wants to say to us about the gospel. So I want to invite you tonight to already posture your hearts, your minds, your hands to receive God's truth, but also just to ask a few questions to be teachable, to approach God's word with some humility and, and maybe let it provoke you a little bit. That perhaps the way you've understood the gospel might not actually be how Jesus understands the gospel. And if, if you've been in Christian circles for any length of time, this word 
might be so familiar to you, when you hear the word gospel, you just immediately think Bible or New Testament, but that's not what gospel means. Even if you don't walk with Jesus, even if you're not in a relationship with Jesus and you're here tonight, you've probably at least heard the word gospel just in Southern Christian culture. It's a very uh, familiar word, but what does it mean? And that's what we're going to study this summer. So the, the big question on the table as we look at it every single week this summer is, do I, personalize that for yourself, do I understand the gospel the way that Jesus understands the gospel? It's an important question. Because Following Jesus or believing in Jesus is, is not just this stale transactional thing where we believe cerebrally with our brain. Following, according to the scriptures, is way more relational in its practice. It's, it's about way more of our entire selves being submitted to the lordship of Jesus, not just our brains. And if somehow we're off, well, that's, that's a problem. Like we want to align ourselves as best we can with how Jesus understood, preached, and practiced the gospel. So the question is, do I understand the gospel the way that Jesus understands the gospel? And if the answer is no, then we need to do some correcting. So when you were young, tell me this, when you were young, did you ever play a game called telephone? Yeah. 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 This side of the room, you guys with me tonight? Yeah. Okay. All right. Good, good, good. You guys with me over here? All right. A little bit in the shadows. It's hard to see you guys. Did you guys ever play a game called telephone? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, maybe like elementary class. I remember playing Heads Up 7-Up a lot, but we would also play, which right now, if you ask me, hey, how do you play Heads Up 7-Up? I could not tell. I do not remember the rules at all. I just remember putting my head on the desk and my thumbs in the air. Is that correct? Something like that. But we also played telephone. I, I remember in class, kindergarten, first grade, playing telephone. And telephone, in case you don't know, but you probably do know, is there's a line of people, and someone down here on this end has something that they want to say. And usually, especially as a little kid, you make it as goofy or as funny as you can possibly think in your mind at the time, which my kids right now, uh, seven, five, and three, my kids right now, everything has to do with like bodily functions, bodily fluids, something of the sort, including my three-year-old sweet, precious daughter who uses the word booty as often as she possibly can. And so you have this phrase in mind or this sentence in mind, and the goal is to pass this phrase along a multitude of people. And so you turn to your right or your left, whatever the line is, and you whisper in this person's ear the phrase or the sentence that you've come up with in your mind. And I don't know how you guys played, but we were rigid. You say it once and that's it. If they didn't hear you, tough luck. They've got to listen well. But then that person passes what they heard or think they heard to the next person. And then that person passes the next person, so on and so forth. Until he gets to the very last person, the goal of the game, I guess how you win the game is, this person says out loud what they just heard. And if what they say matches exactly what was said to begin with, the whole group wins and celebrates. Did anyone ever actually do that? Because in my experience, it was never the same. Nikia, you had, Nikia, you kept, you kept them straight. We ain't changing it in this group. But in my experience, it was never the same. Why? Because someone or multiple people in the line always delighted in changing that sentence to mildly inappropriate things, like things to get a laugh, uh, funny things. Again, my kids would change it to like bodily fluids and bodily functions right now. They are all about that life. No matter what begins, they would put it towards that. Information changes as it gets passed, which praise be to God 
that one of the ways he has decided to reveal himself is through written word, because it is much harder to change or alter something that has been written and preserved for thousands of years. So we're thankful for that. But even so, when we approach the word of God, there's things that people understand differently, and there's practices and traditions and, and ways that it gets fleshed out that are different. And so the question on the table tonight is, if I follow Jesus, and I believe that Jesus is at, in some way, and maybe even just a little bit, that Jesus is God, and that 2,000 years ago, God put skin on and came to this earth, and part of the reason he came was to reveal the heart of God and to call us into fellowship and union with God. If I believe that in any way, even if it's just a little bit, then there has to be something in us, deep within us, that desires to align our understanding of what Jesus called gospel with how we think about gospel. But here's what we've observed over a couple thousand years of this movement of following Jesus. The way that people understand, practice, apply, and talk about gospel changes. Oftentimes it changes based on culture. What tends to happen is instead of gospel influencing culture and changing things within the culture, what tends to happen is culture wants to somehow include Jesus in these principles. And instead of, instead of just taking Jesus as is, we tend to chip away and alter a few things and, and change a few things and rearrange things so that it fits. And in so doing, we've lost accuracy in terms of what Jesus said about what gospel is. And so I would suggest to you tonight, and I'm not trying to like upset you or ruffle feathers or offend you, but I would just suggest at the very simplest level that um, in many ways, the average American who believes in Jesus has some variation of gospel, which is way more American than it is Jesus, which is, which is way more red, white, and blue than it is actually this Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago and taught us about the kingdom of heaven. And if that's true, then in some ways it means we have not a completely inaccurate understanding of gospel, of Jesus, but in some ways not an entirely accurate or correct understanding. And again, if we're saying we, we, we follow Jesus, we believe in Jesus, then the way that he thought about gospel is important. The question on the table this entire summer is, do I understand gospel the way that Jesus understood gospel, the way that he talked about it, preached about it, thought about it, practiced it, is that how I think, practice, believe? And if not, then we need to do some correcting. But how do we know? So let's, let's dig in. We're going to be in a, a passage tonight. But first, I just want to tell you this. At a very simple level, the, the word gospel, the Greek word gospel, specifically means good news. You may have already heard that before. You may have already known that. Like, oh yeah, gospel is good news. I just want you to know at the very basic level, the word gospel means good news, which also implies that there's such a thing as bad news. And Jesus came to earth to proclaim good news in the midst of a bad news reality. And so the, the gospel is hopeful. It's in some ways wishful. It's almost like too good to be true. But Jesus comes and preaches what he calls good news. The question is, do I understand good news the way that Jesus understands good news? Or am I like understanding it way more American than Jesus? 
Somehow in the past couple thousand years, in the past 300 something years that our country has been a nation, have we allowed the gospel, the good news to become way Americanized and we don't even realize it? Or, or am I directly in line with Jesus? You guys with me? Okay. Ooh, I like that. That was very soulful. Mm-hmm. All right. Feel free to give me those all night. So there's a, there's a, a pastor named John Mark Comer. Maybe some of you have read his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. But he's got this great quote. He, he says this, the, the, the gospel that we live in will oftentimes be the gospel that we live out. And what he's talking about is this idea that, that there is a possibility, there is such a thing as having a version of the gospel in your head and heart. And you think it's great and you think it's accurate. And the gospel that you live in the most tends to be the gospel that you live out of the most. And so many of us might have ideas about God that may be inaccurate. Views or perspectives about God, grace, wrath, judgment, sin, punishment, things in this realm that may or may not be inaccurate. The gospel that you live in the most tends to be the gospel that you live out. And so we want to make sure that our understanding of gospel, of good news, is where Jesus' understanding of good news is. So let's turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. I encourage you often, but I'll encourage you tonight as well. Bring your Bibles when you come to church. Not, don't just rely on your phone. Hey, thanks, Seth. I appreciate that, man. Don't just rely on your phone, least of which is because you know yourselves. I know you. You know you. You know how distracted you're going to get. You can look at me and be like, nah, fam, it's on airplane mode. No, like I've been here on Sunday nights where I have not preached, and I've been behind you guys, and I've observed upwards of 80% of this room multitasking on Twitter, mostly Snapchat, other apps like that, while they're listening to the search. So I, I would just encourage you guys, if you want to get the most out, give the most of your focus in, bring your Bibles. Get familiar with the book. Bring your Bibles. We'll be in Mark chapter 10 tonight. Here's the context. Jesus' reputation precedes himself. He's very well known at this point. Many uh, are coming to him for miracles. Many are coming to him for healing. Many are coming uh, to him with questions. By this point in Jesus's life and ministry, he is uh, well uh, at odds with the religious leaders of his day. They were called the Pharisees and they do not like him um, because they feel their power slipping through their fingers and their influence. And Jesus is, is proclaiming things like love and repentance and hope and grace. And they just don't like this message. And so Jesus has a following. He has a reputation. He also has a whole squad of people that do not like him. And so he's very well known. And there's one person that has heard about Jesus that is uh, desiring to ask Jesus this burning question within his soul. And so in this passage, it's a pretty famous passage, and one of my favorite passages in the scriptures, but in this passage, this man does not have a name. We don't know his name. We just have attributes about this man. So here's what we know. This man is young, and this man is rich. And so he's called the rich young man. Uh, very appropriate title here. And so this rich young man hears about Jesus in his town, and he's got a deep-seated burning question in his heart that he desires to ask Jesus. Something in this young man's mind, something in his experience, some reputation of Jesus, something he's heard has convinced him that Jesus is the one who can answer this question for me. 
And what this man is curious about is eternal life. And so he hears about Jesus in his town and he says, this is my opportunity to figure out the answer to my question. So we're going to start Mark chapter 10, verse 17. You there? Yeah. Okay. You hungry? Yes. All right. Well, let's eat then. Here we go. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. And if we were to pause here, I would be willing to bet that the majority of this room at some point in their life has asked that exact same question. You may have changed the words a little bit. You might have a little bit of a different nuance on it. But the heartbeat of that question is, how do I spend this next life with God? When I was 15 years old, I don't know why or from where it came from, but out of nowhere, I became terrified of dying and, and not spending this next life with God. And I didn't know what that meant. I had a lot of questions. I've been where this dude is. I've had this question, like, what do I need to do? In fact, I didn't grow up in church, but I, I met with a youth pastor around the age of 15 going on 16, and I asked him this very question, very uh, similar question. Hey, here's, here's what I've done. I, I was sprinkled when I was a baby because my dad was Catholic. Uh, I, I think God is real. Like, what does that mean? Like, I, I don't want to die and go to hell. Like, that was basically my presentation. And this young man is curious about what happens after death. He's curious about how to experience life with God. He's curious about eternal life, he calls it. And Jesus is in his town and he seizes the opportunity. Somehow he's convinced Jesus is the rabbi. In fact, he calls him the good rabbi or good teacher who can answer this question. So somehow this rich young man is associating Jesus with eternal life, with God. Somehow Jesus speaks on behalf of God in this young man's mind. He comes and he kneels before him, a show of, of respect, maybe even worship, and he asks him the burning question, how, how can I have eternal life? What can I do? Jesus responds in a very awkward and unexpected way. And this is the thing about Jesus, man. The more you read the New Testament, the more you're kind of surprised with Jesus, or at least I am, because he's so unorthodox in his responses and reactions. Oftentimes he does things that you're like, what? I wouldn't expect him to react that way. Here's this dude who's knelt before Jesus. He's not ashamed of that, of that body posture. He's not ashamed to apparently do this in public, have this conversation in public. Like, like so often we can be embarrassed to to publicly make it known that we follow Jesus, love Jesus. He, here he is in public, kneeling, asking him a question. And you would expect Jesus to kind of be like, wow. Almost to pause the whole scene and be like, uh-huh, this. Y'all see this? This is what I'm talking about. This guy gets it. Like, you would almost expect Jesus to, to admonish him, to, to esteem him for his faith and his humbleness. And instead, Jesus responds kind of with a, like, let me shut down the conversation. Jesus says, why do you call me good? huh, that was an interesting way to approach me, bro. Why do you call me that? And it's kind of like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, why, like, why, you just throw your arm around him. Like, give him a little like, wow, great question, bro. And Jesus says, hey, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's a very interesting response. We're going to circle back to it. 
and kind of unpack why would Jesus respond that way. But then Jesus does something, in my opinion, even more unexpected, even more odd. And if I'm very honest with you, see you, Maddie, and if I'm very honest with you, not just confusing, but upsetting. Jesus looks at him. This man is knelt before Jesus. Are you there in your mind? Do you see it? Are you in the crowd? Do you see it happening? He's knelt before Jesus. He's paused Jesus. Jesus is walking. Now he's paused. His schedule's thrown off. He's made Jesus five minutes late at least. And he says, good teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, all we know about this young man is he's rich. How did he become wealthy? We don't know. Possibly through an inheritance. It may be why he uses this language. He's familiar with receiving upon death. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? Whoa. And then he looks at him and he says this. All right, here's what you can do to inherit eternal life. He says, you know the commandments, don't you? And Jesus, all of a sudden, begins to list a few of the Ten Commandments found in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Jesus says this. He says, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, here's what's interesting. If you have, if you have been uh, within Christian circles long enough, you will hear the gospel being talked about. You will hear relationship with Jesus being presented. And one of the things you might hear, at least if you're in some healthier churches, one of the things you might hear is, hey, salvation, being saved, is a work that Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. Have you ever heard something like that before? Show of hands. Yes? Come on, show of hands. Okay, yes. Salvation cannot be earned by your works. In other words, you can't do enough. You can't stack up enough. Life is not this cosmic scale, and if you have enough grains of rice of good works over here and it tips the bad works over here, you'll get in. Like, nowhere will you find that in the scriptures, in the New Testament, in Jesus' teaching. In fact, one of the conclusions you will arrive at is if you go all the way back to Genesis, which shout out to Epic, make sure you come, garden theme, hint, hint. But if you go all the way back to Genesis, you will see that we were created to be in a relationship with God um, that, that exists within a perfect harmony, undistorted and uncorrupted by sin. And that was kind of always God's design and plan. And when we joined the rebellion in Genesis chapter 3, God initiated the rescue plan. It was God who initiated ways for us to be made right with him. It was God who initiated ways for us to have our sins dealt with. It was God who pursued us. It was God who chased us. It was God who initiated covenants with us. It was God who initiated friendships with us. The scriptures are all about God initiating the chase, the pursuit, the healing. Nowhere in scripture ever do we see Hey, but, but, like God is hunting and chasing and loves you and he wants you, but if you will just do enough, you can earn this thing. You can, you can heal your own soul. Never do we see that. And if you ever hear a preacher describe that, challenge his teaching and don't go back because that's heresy. You cannot work your way into heaven. 
Jesus' last declaration on the cross, it is finished, was all about the work that had to be done on our behalf. And therefore, how shocking is it for this young man to be knelt before Jesus saying, what can I do? Works-based mentality, effort-based mentality. Yeah, you with me? Yes? Jesus doesn't respond with, you can't do anything, bro. I'm going to accomplish it all on the cross. How does Jesus respond? Oh, wow. Here's a guy who has some uh, initiative. All right, bro, here's a checklist. Do these things. And Jesus actually tells him to do things. You would expect Jesus to say, you can't do. You must receive what's going to be done on your behalf. Or something like, just believe. Repent and believe. Jesus doesn't go there. Jesus goes to the task list. Yeah, do these things. You know the commandments, don't you? They're in the Old Testament. Exodus 20. Do them. And Jesus starts rattling off commandments. This is absurd because this is not how you would expect Jesus to respond. A works-based, seemingly works-based approach to eternal life. You got to be careful with Jesus. Because Jesus has a way of challenging, disrupting, provoking, and creating little puzzles for your very, very good theology that you have in your head. You got got to be real careful. You read enough about how Jesus responds and does things, and you're kind of like, wow, I got to wrestle with this. And Jesus responds with a works-based list. Why? Why? It's very confusing. The goal tonight is really not to investigate what Jesus is doing as much as I would would love to. It might take a little bit too long. I just want us to ponder this, like, what is Jesus, why would he do this? But here's what I do want to highlight. Let me throw up a slide of the Ten Commandments on the screen. So Exodus 20, maybe you memorized these when you were little. Anyone? Anyone ever get, like, rewards at home? Yeah? Oh, nice, Sophia. Okay, here's the Ten Commandments based out of Exodus 20. Now, I'm going to read to you how Jesus responds to this young man. Remember the context. He's rich, he's young, he has some sense of authority. In other passages, he's called the rich young ruler. So he's got some sense of authority. But listen to how Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't read off all ten commandments. Is this accidental? Did God in the flesh forget what he had written so many years? I don't think so. I think Jesus is doing something Very intentional with this guy. So the guy comes, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is like, why do you call me good? But here's what you can do. And Jesus gives him five commandments and then says kind of the the flip side of one. He says six things, but five of them are commandments. He says, you know the commandments, don't you? Do not murder. Where's that up here? Number what? Great. Number six, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Where's that? Do not steal. Where's that? Do not bear false witness. Where's that? Then he says, do not defraud. That's not up there, which is also really interesting. Like, whoa, wait, what is this 11th commandment? What is Jesus? It's the, it's the flip side of stealing, um, taking from someone, and not giving something to someone that they deserve are seen kind of similarly. But one is called stealing and one is called defraud. And so perhaps we get a little glimpse into how this man got his wealth. Maybe he cheated some people out of things. He withheld what other people deserved or earned. We don't know. There's a lot of vagueness. But here's what is interesting. God in the flesh is standing here, 
God wrote these 10 commandments in stone with his own finger on the, mount, on the mountain with Moses. It's not like Jesus just forgot what they were. What's commandment number 10 that Jesus leaves out? Thou shalt not what? Covet. Now, isn't that interesting? Because if culture has told us anything, if you've ever listened to interviews of people who are like super rich, exceedingly wealthy, and got what they wanted and bought more and more and more and more and more, one of the things that you will see rise to the surface as a theme, not of all of their lives, but of a large portion of really crazy wealthy people's lives is they tend to be dissatisfied and discontent with what they have and always look at other people's lives as if they are better and begin to crave the reality of other people's lives. What is that called? Yeah, not a trick question. What is it called? Coveting. And Jesus leaves it out. It's almost like Jesus knows what the easy answers would be for this guy. Hey man, don't murder. Haven't done that, Jesus. This is great. I'm about to go to heaven. Don't steal. Okay, I haven't. Don't lie. Cool. Honor your father and mother. Done. Somehow, this young man has done it. Most of us have not. But Jesus leaves out coveting. Again, we don't know, but if we're putting some detective work into this, this man is exceedingly wealthy Maybe this is a very rare case where someone who's super rich has never once looked at someone else's life and desired something, but I doubt it. And so maybe Jesus leaves that one out on purpose because he knows if he says that, the dude would not be able to be like, oh, I've done all that. What else does Jesus leave out? Not just number 10, but what? One through four. Jesus doesn't even touch those. Why? Accidental? I don't think so. The Ten Commandments are divided into two halves. The first four deal with our relationship with God, and the latter six deal with our relationship to the people around us. Jesus tends to focus on the latter six with this young man. He doesn't even talk about his relationship with God. Accidental? I think not. Now, real quick, this young man bowing before Jesus asks him this question, what can I do to inherit eternal life? You and I hear that question through the American lens of what we think eternal life is, which is when do you die, you go to heaven. Is that fairly accurate? Like most of us heard this passage with that lens. This man's asking Jesus, how can I go to heaven when I die? I put that Southern twang on it because it seems pretty Southern in its mentality. But again, context of passage, a first century Jewish person does not have a 21st century American idea of what eternal life is. What was this young man's view of eternal life? What was a first century Jew's view of eternal life? It was not really when you die, you go to heaven. It was really how can I experience life with God? Not not something in terms of time, but something in terms of quality. How can I have the best life with God? But how does Jesus define eternal life? That'd be a great question. Well, we actually have the answer to this. John chapter 17, verse 3, look at this. Jesus, praying, says this. This is eternal life, that they, us, people who believe in Jesus, that they would know you, that they would know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus defines eternal life through the context of relationship through the context of knowing God. Now let's pause 
Let's be accurate and honest. Most people, especially who have grown up in the South, especially Southeast United States, we define eternal life through knowing God relationally. No, we tend to define eternal life through location. Where do we go when we die? Is that accurate? Jesus doesn't define eternal life that way. For Jesus, eternal life is knowing the one true God and knowing Jesus. It's about relationship. It's relational, not locational. When this young man comes to Jesus and says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? It's, it's this idea of like, yes, when I die, how can I have the best life possible? But it's also this idea of how can I know God? How, how can I know Yahweh? How, how, can I, how can I receive this kind of life? And Jesus talks about doing works. It's very odd. Now, this young man looks at Jesus, verse 21, and he responds and he says to Jesus, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. In other words, from the time that this young man was even younger, he's never murdered someone, he's never committed adultery, he's never stolen, he's never lied, he's never bared false witness, he's not defrauded, and according to him, he's honored his father and mother. Quick show of hands. Anyone could claim that one, especially that last one? Has everyone in this room honored their father and mother since birth? Yeah, I think this, either this guy is a phenom, like he's the one who's never disrespected his parents, or somehow he's just very self-unaware. He just doesn't realize what Jesus is saying. But either way, he responds to Jesus with fervor, with eagerness, with excitement. He said, this is, this is incredible. I want to know what I can do. You gave me a checklist, and I've done all of this. It's phenomenal. I'm going to inherit eternal life. I'm going to experience knowing God. And Jesus says, oh man, you're like this close. You're this close, bro. One more thing. You see how Jesus is, is playing this, this, this game with him, not in a manipulative way, but he's like speaking his language. Like, all right, bro, you want a checklist? Let me give you a checklist. Oh, you've done all those. Let me give you one more thing. He says, one thing you lack. You can imagine this young man still kneeling before Jesus in this conversation, looking up. You can imagine at this moment, he's elated. Like, dude, I'm six for six right now. This is fantastic. One more thing, and I, <laughs> I'm going to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, one more thing. Young man's, what, what, what is it? What is it? Just tell me. Jesus says this. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. So this was not some cruel, weird thing. Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and then give it to the poor. Whatever money you make, just give it away. And then you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. This young man who came to Jesus and called him good, which Jesus inquired about that. Why do you call me good? This young man who came to Jesus and, and said, good teacher, good rabbi. And Jesus looked at him and said, why do you call me good? You remember how the passage began? 
It's an odd response. But here's what Jesus was getting at. Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I, 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 heard a, I heard this Muslim preacher very recently preach a sermon out of this passage and use it as evidence to say, ah, see, Jesus never claimed to be God. In fact, the opposite. He said he wasn't God. But it's actually the opposite. Jesus is saying he is God through this passage. In other words, imagine you've got, uh, anybody, anybody enjoy like a, Superhero movies, Marvel, DC, yeah. Um, That's a silly question. I know you all do. Uh, Imagine if Superman had his... Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I know that's DC. Just bear with me. Imagine if Superman... DC's better anyway. Imagine if Superman... (laughs) Of all the things I've said tonight, that is the one. Oh, that we can't stand for, man. Works-based salvation, I will let that roll. But this, imagine Superman has his suit on and he has his glasses on and he's not Superman, he's Clark. And imagine someone comes up to him and looks at him and says, wow, Clark, you look super today. That's kind of a compliment. And Clark looks back and he says, why do you call me super? (laughs) You know, no one is really super except super man, don't you? This is kind of what Jesus is doing. Really, Jesus is, is, is not saying that he's not God. In fact, the opposite. He is God, and he wants to know if this young man actually knows that. Like, oh, do you, did you do that on purpose? Why do you call me good? You know no one's good except God alone. Do you know that I'm God, or are you just flattering me as a teacher? That's what Jesus is doing here. And then Jesus doesn't even allow him time to answer. He bypasses that and kind of does this thing. You want to know what you can do? Okay, here's some things you could do. And he intentionally leaves off covenant. He intentionally leaves off have no gods before me because the God of this man's life is not Yahweh. It's what? Money. It's the idol of his life. It's the one thing he won't be able to let go of. So Jesus doesn't go down that road when he talks about doing. He goes down the road of things this young man could do easily. And this young man is brought to this place of like, oh, I've done all these since my, this is amazing. And Jesus says, one more thing, one more thing. Everything you have, your whole wealth, go and sell it. Give it away to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Now what's astounding about this, aside from the weighty expectation that Jesus puts on this young man. What's astounding is there were times in the life and ministry of Jesus where he would give an invitation to follow him, but it was always corporate. Like multitudes of people were there, like Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, they must first deny themselves, take up their cross, and then follow me. Like that was a corporate invitation. But a personal invitation to look at someone individually in their eyes and say, you, you, follow me. That only happened 12 times other than this. The rarity of what Jesus is doing with this young man, potentially a 13th disciple, personal invitation to follow Jesus. Imagine God's plan for this young man that he did not fulfill because the God of his heart was not Yahweh, but money. Imagine 
Potentially, he was supposed to have written books in the Bible, which are not written because he did not give up the God of his heart. Imagine us reading about this unnamed man later. Imagine Matthew or Mark or Luke or John writing and naming him, and yet we'll never know because the God of his heart was not Yahweh but money. Jesus looks at him and loves him, the scriptures say, and says, you lack one thing. If you really want to know what you can do, do this. The young man says, what? And Jesus says, give it all away. Or in other words, let the God of your heart not be money or wealth, but let it be me. Why did you call me good? Do you really think I'm God? Because if you think that, I want to be God of your heart. Do you know who you're talking to? Did you call me good on purpose? Or are you just flattering me? If you really think I'm good, if you really think I'm God alone, let me be the God of your heart. Now we read passages like this, and we kind of read them as if we are far removed from them. And in many ways, we are. This is 2,000 years ago. And yet, there is such a relevant, current, up-to-date accuracy within this passage that we can't ignore. You're the one bowed before Jesus. And you've heard enough about him to maybe trust to some degree that he just might be able to answer the questions you have about life after death, about your soul, about eternal life. And so you come into his presence, maybe not on the road in a village like this young man. Maybe you drive to a building and you come into a room with other people who believe a similar thing, that there's this one called Jesus and he just might be God. And you're trying to figure that out in your mind. And let's just say you're there and Jesus looks at you and he gives you a list and you're like, what can I do? And he says, well, do these things. And maybe the list he gives you are things that come so naturally to you and so easy to you that you're like, oh, this is fantastic. I'm set. But then Jesus, because he loves you and he desires to be in a relationship with you, he does not desire to be an add-on to your life, but he desires to be your life. Jesus then very accurately, very sharply, puts his finger on your heart, looks behind all these things, and puts his finger on the one thing. Sometimes when we read a story like this, we think, oh, I'm not exceedingly wealthy. I don't know what it's like to have bukus of money, and Jesus hasn't asked me to give it up, but okay, interchange money with something else. Like if you were bowed before Jesus, and Jesus looked at you and said, hey, you lack one thing. I want you to give up your future. And then you will have treasure in heaven and follow me. And you're like, what? And he's like, yeah, from here on out, I don't want you to worry about what college you're going to get into. I'll decide that. I don't want you to try to open doors for yourself. I'll do that for you. I don't want you to try to like plan out and have control over the vocation or, or what profession you're going to go into. I don't want you to try to structure your future without me designing that. For, I, I want your future. Would you trust me to lead you in the best ways possible? Give up your own control. I would be willing to bet that some in here, not all, but some would be like, oh, hold on. I didn't know Jesus would ask for that. This young man didn't know he would be asked for his entire wealth. 
Maybe future is not your thing. Control is not your thing. Perhaps it's like a relationship. I have known many high school students in some love relationships. And one of the things that, and I mean no offense by this, it just is what it is, and I was this in high school as well, but one of the things that high schoolers are notorious for is being with a person for, oh, 21 days or so and, and discovering that you are madly in love with this person and you have discovered your soulmate and you can't imagine breathing without this person in your life. And sometimes you might find yourself in some really unhealthy and toxic and red flag ridden relationships and yet you can't give that up because you have begun to interwove, interweave your identity, worth, value, purpose, stability. You've begun to combine those things with this person in your life and you actually become blind to how bad they are for you. And what if Jesus were in here right now and said, hey, I want you to give me that relationship. No, but I love them. (laughs) Well, I love you, and I'm telling you, you don't need them. I want you to give me that relationship. And hypothetically, it's easy, but if you're actually there and Jesus were to show up in your room tonight and ask you for your boyfriend or girlfriend, I dare say you might have a hard time. You'd weigh it out. Oh, well, let me just, can I pros and cons this thing? Like, can I? You would. Maybe it's not future, it's not relationship. Maybe it's uh, like your image. I I think your generation works really, really hard at at curating just the right image of yourself. And if Jesus were in front of you, he might say, I want you to stop worrying about how people think about you. I want you to stop people-pleasing. I want you to drop the ego. I want you to drop all that pride and humble yourself. Give that up. Stop trying to be alpha dude. Stop trying to be the most popular girl. Give me your reputation. I think there'd be some in this room who'd say, ah, I don't know about that. Because I like the way people perceive me. Makes me feel good. Yeah, but what's the God of your heart? Or a whole multitude of things. Addictions, sin, time. I think if Jesus stood in front of you and said, hey, I don't want you to spend any more time playing Fortnite I want you to give me your free time. I think there'd be a lot who'd be like, ah, I don't know. What Jesus is getting at with this young man is not the God he professes with his lips, but it's the God he practices with his heart. And that's what the gospel of Jesus does. The gospel of Jesus, yeah, it wants your behavior and it wants your works. Jesus talks a lot about good works. Let your good works shine before God and men so that people may give glory to God. The end of the Sermon on the Mount ends with, apply these things that I've told you. Do them. Like Jesus is all about good works, but good works based out of a relationship with him when he's God of your heart. You may be sitting there wondering, well, how do I know if there's a, like, how do I know if Jesus isn't the God of my heart? Well, How does Jesus think about gospel as he invites this young man whom he loves into a relationship with him? The gospel of Jesus asks for your everything. Everything. And I've said this to you before, and I mean it. I feel like my generation has wildly 
let your generation down. Because one of the things we did as we got into church leadership and things like that is we began to preach sermons that sounded something like this. Hey, come to Jesus just as you are. Come to Jesus here and now. Come to Jesus and receive his grace. And all of those are true. And yes and amen. And do come to Jesus just as you are. And you don't have to work your way to him. And he does have grace for you. But we kind of left it there. And we didn't include the back half of the gospel, which is, hey, come to Jesus and repent of your sin because Jesus desires everything in your heart. The gospel of Jesus, according to Jesus, desires, asks for everything. Now here's one of the things I've learned about people. This is, this is kind of interesting. Um, like it happens at Epic, it happens at other places I've preached when I go and preach at, at youth conferences or camps or other churches or whatever. I might have like a response night and I'll be up there and I'll be like, yo, who wants to believe in Jesus tonight? And people are like, I do. And it's like, oh yeah. Who wants Jesus tonight? And people are going nuts and hype. And I, and I might even ask, who wants to give Jesus your everything? And the whole room's like, Aah! volcano of emotion, just spewing snot and tears and all sorts of stuff. The invitation to give Jesus your everything is sometimes easy because of what's not mentioned. The gospel asks for everything, but here's what else it does. The gospel of Jesus asks for the one thing. On invitation nights, if I were to change up the wording, the room's hype. Who wants Jesus? Yeah! Who wants to reside? Do! Who wants to give him your everything? <laughs> yes! Who wants to give him that one secret sin that you haven't been able to repent of and nobody really knows it exists in your life and he's asking for it right now? Would you come and lay that on the altar publicly? And it's kind of like, oh, don't know about that. Because I want to give him everything because it's kind of easy to lump the word everything into this umbrella, ambiguous umbrella. But all of a sudden, Jesus puts his finger on one thing and says, that, that's what I want. Why? Let's go back to the beginning. The gospel is good news. And when you hear an invitation or a message and you're like, wow, Matt, like, this doesn't sound like good news. Remember what Jesus is inviting you into. He is inviting you into eternal life. How does Jesus define eternal life? As some ambiguous, mysterious place you go in the sky when you die? No. Jesus defines eternal life as knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is inviting you into as he asks for everything and as he asks for the one thing is a deeper and more intimate relationship with the one true God and with Jesus Christ. Jesus is not trying to create a life of void and funless experience for you. He's actually trying to give you the best possible thing you could have on this planet, which is the fullest understanding, knowledge, and intimacy of his presence and friendship you could possibly have. That's how Jesus thinks about eternal life. But in order to get there, of course, he would have to have your heart and not be seen as some add-on, as something you just kind of snap onto your life. Oh, look, I got Jesus. He wants your heart, which includes everything. It also includes the one thing so that he may offer you the best thing, which is a deep, intimate, living, thriving, personal, vibrant relationship with the one true God as we've been given the full presence of God to live with us, inside of us, the spirit of Jesus. 
He wants you to experience eternal life here and now, not just death and go somewhere, but life and live this to have that friendship with him. It's how it was always meant to be in the garden all through scripture. And Jesus is saying to you, I want that. I want to give you that, but I need that. The gospel of Jesus asks for everything. The gospel of Jesus asks for one thing. The gospel of Jesus is good news because it gives eternal life to those who believe. What is eternal life? To know the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus wants to give you, which is far better than anything that you might have in your heart that you've convinced yourself is a better replacement than Jesus. So I think the gospel invites you, just as it did this young man, to go out on a limb, to risk something, to give up that which you find to be utterly important in your life if it's replacing a relationship with Jesus. And then I think Jesus invites you to follow him and experience eternal life here and now on this earth because there is nothing better. So that's the invitation the gospel gives. It's really up to you in terms of how to respond, but I pray that you would have the courage to respond differently than this young man did. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this interaction with this young man uh, who you invited to be a a disciple, who, who you gave a personal invitation to, to follow you. It's a really special and unique thing. And Jesus, maybe even more unique is the fact that somehow in the mystery of salvation and eternal life and kingdom of God and all these interchangeable words, somehow you've given us that same invitation to know the one true God and to know his son, Jesus, as you fill us with your spirit. And so, Jesus, we pray. We pray that as we follow you, we would give you everything and the one thing, that our relationship with you would not become this dualistic Jesus, you have my heart, but so does this other thing, and somehow I've found this normal way of practicing that. But I pray that there would be a wrestling match within our soul, that we would feel the draw to know you deeper, that we would, that we would feel the reality that if we've put anything in our heart on our heart other than you, that we are somehow missing out on eternal life, experiencing the fullness of your presence here and now. Let us not define eternal life as somewhere we go when we die, but let us define eternal life the way you did, knowledge of the one true God and his son Jesus within us. Help us experience that, Father, by trusting you with everything and the one thing. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.